Mark chapter 8 is where we're at, and I'm going to uh, read that section, and then we're going to uh, uh, look at the nuances of the four statements that Jesus makes in Mark 8, 34, and the four reasons Jesus gives, and I'll walk through and pair them together so we know what's there, and I will want to talk about really four characteristics of this little phrase where Jesus says, take up your cross and then follow me. Mark 8, 34 says this, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whatever, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with his holy angels. Now, we've walked through this. If you're new with us this morning, we've been working through this particular statement and breaking it in pieces. Uh, This next slide shows you the framework that I've mentioned earlier, that there are four statements that Jesus makes if you want to follow him. Now, the, the, the ambiguity in this is that Christ hasn't actually died on the cross yet, but he has set the, the context of that, that reality even though it hasn't happened. Because if you back up a few verses, you will just see Jesus talking about who do people think that I am? And of course, they think he's a prophet and a great teacher and other things, but what, Jesus, what Peter finally comes to is you're the Christ, you're the Son of God, you're the Messiah, the anointed one that God has sent. And with that understanding, Jesus then follows that with predicting his suffering and rejection and his crucifixion. And so he introduces the gospel as we would think about it. And so living between this old covenant and the coming new covenant relationship that will be ratified by his death and resurrection, Jesus introduces this concept of the gospel in a fresh new way. And and yet for these people, since he hasn't died, they're going to go, what does this actually look like in real life? And so Jesus walks through these verses and he explains to them that if you really want to understand what the gospel of the kingdom is, this gospel that I'm speaking about that in a sense is yet future, here's what it will look like in your life if you really understand who I am and willing to believe in my death and resurrection. Of course, even the disciples struggled with understanding the whole idea. They probably thought it was a metaphor for something else. But as he comes to this, he he outlines what seems to be very severe requirements of what it really means to follow Jesus. The first one is, if you want to come after me, the reason that he follows it with is that if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. If you want to lose your life, then that's how you save it. And so following Jesus isn't just another listening to another podcast, among all the podcasts you would list, Jesus is calling for this unilateral surrender so that you follow me. I become the center point of life. He then says you need to deny himself or herself, which we talked about is a person can gain the entire world and lose or forfeit their soul. They can be successful, brilliant, educated, have lots of money, have lots of stuff and things, But he says you can accomplish all of those things and still forfeit your soul. And so he's not just talking about how to live a better life, he's talking about the struggle for eternal life. 
And then as we looked at last week, or that was the frame, what we're gonna look at this week is the idea of taking up your cross, which is a complement to denying self. In fact, I've suggested to you the idea of denying self is a lot like repentance. Taking up your cross really becomes the reconciliation that Christ does in their life. But he puts it in terms of their relationship to, with the physical Jesus standing right in front of them. And so then next week we'll deal with the idea of what does it mean to follow him where the text talks about if anyone is ashamed of me, then I'll be ashamed of them. And that has some sobering innuendos to it as we think about it. I will simply suggest to you that if you have a sense that you're a follower of Jesus, but you're unwilling to deny self, take up your cross, then the ashamed part will be much more brilliant and harsh because you really haven't understood what Jesus requires if you're gonna follow him. So as we begin to look at this, there are interesting things that come into this conversation. One we haven't talked a lot about is the idea of your soul. The, the statement that we're dealing with is, what is the price of someone's soul? What is, it, what is the redemptive price of a person's soul? Uh, you know, a soul is pretty straightforward. We run into it in earlier in Genesis, where we're told that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And that word life is the Old Testament word nephesh, which literally means breath, which that's kind of the root core idea is the idea of breath. So when Adam became a living being, he could breathe on his own. God breathed that sense of life into him. And of course, the same with Eve. The Old Testament idea has a lot of variety to it, but the, some of the basic meanings is to indicate a sense of desire. So if you go in the Psalms, it's my life cries out to you, or I desire you, and that word nephesh is used to describe that person's heart desire for seeking after him. It, it simply talks about a personal individual being. God created Adam and Eve, and they were individuals that came into existence we do it differently than he do it. We have babies and grandbabies and that kind of stuff. Well, grandparents don't have grandbabies, but they inherit them anyway. You get what I'm talking about. Um, and it, it, it gives us the ability to be self-aware. So the idea in all of this is that God, that whole sense of that principle of life is embedded in the image of God that's created in every single human being, which is a, another reason that the word racism to me is, I don't like that term. Uh, it sort of infers there's different kinds of races of human beings. I think there is only one race of human beings that started with Adam and Eve. We have lots of different ethnic groups, but everyone has the same value and deserves the same respect regardless of where they're born or anything else because they're created in the image of God. And that's, if we figured that out a long time ago, <laughs> it's potentially possible we wouldn't have uh, some of the massive conflict that we have in our culture now, but knowing good old sinful human beings, we can take anything and mess it up. Um, and so there's always that potential. And then it talks about an emotional state. First Kings 17, we run into this term where the prophet is, stretches himself upon a child three times and cries out to the Lord. He says, oh Lord my God, let the child's life come into him after he had died, that was the plea. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again. So God restored his life. So we would look at it as the difference between life and death. If a person dies, that person's life, his soul, uh, that spirit, if you want to use that language, 
is gone and ceases to indwell that. The Bible would also seem to indicate that that's an eternal thing. Our soul doesn't die at death, that it is a living eternal element and it continues to go on in existence and so that's why we have heaven and hell and all those kinds of language and and discussions about where we end up for eternity and compels us, it ought to compel us that if people actually are heading for a place that isn't in the presence of God, we ought to be more compelled than ever to uh, share the message of the hope of the gospel. In the New Testament, there's a couple of texts, uh, and the text that we are focusing on, of course, is where Jesus says, I want, you, uh, I want you to take up your cross and then follow me. And the little phrase in verse 37 is, "What for what can a man give in return for his soul? Um, there are four things that I believe this idea of the cross really means. It's not specifically laid out here, but I believe when it's, we talk about taking up our cross, Jesus means a couple of key things. I'm gonna give you four that I think is what's required. They're different than the idea of denying self. That's I'm going to repent of a self-directed life that I call the shots, that I'm trying to find my sense of self-fulfillment and self-identity and self-sufficiency in my ways of doing it. I'm, I'm setting that all aside and I'm going to allow God to fill those divine needs. So there are, first one is what I will call identity in Christ. Jesus is saying if you're, the whole idea of a picture of a cross in New Testament times, especially with the Romans, is a brutal symbol of death. It is one where they crucified criminals and executed individuals that were uh, criminalized in terms of uh, the community and the society. Uh, there's lots of different kinds of crosses. We don't need to get into it. You know, the typical one we're used to is a beam that has a cross beam in it. Uh, there's different kinds. A tradition would tell us that Peter was executed on a cross that was more like an X uh, than it was like a, a cross as we think about it. There are some crosses that had two cross beams at the top. Uh, Jesus probably died on one of those, one for his arms that were strung out, and then there, remember there was an inscription on another piece of wood above him that would probably indicate that there was another smaller beam that was above his head in terms of crucifixion. But the symbol there is death, and it would be suiting to realize that Jesus is predicting the way that he's going to die. And so the idea is is that if I'm sold out to Jesus, I'm going to identify with him if I really want to follow him, even in the face of potential death. Now, at the heart of this, it says, well, I'm going to die to, I'm now dying to the old life, and I'm now going to have this new life in Christ. And I will suggest to you that our sense of identity changes. We're not self-made people. I mean, without Christ, that's all we do is we try to, be self-made people. We take classes and go to schools and we get training and we try to develop our character and we're trying to develop ourselves to the best that we can and we get it in the world that we live in. But the thing we have to realize is that no matter how much we reinvent ourselves, we're never going to have an understanding of our true identity and the other language that we use is our authentic self or our genuine self or my true identity apart from being in Christ. And the reason we can say that is because we live in a broken world. We are all subject to the weight of sinfulness and decay and corruption that has landed on us because of sin. 
And no matter how much we do, we will never discover who we are until we have surrendered our life to Christ and then, as we'll see in a moment, then he creates within us a new heart, as it were, so that we have a new identity that's connected to Jesus. And that becomes critical. In fact, I'll suggest to you that until that is healthy, we're gonna really struggle living this discipleship life following Jesus because it's one of the biggest factors that keeps us from following him. The other way I put it is um, our identity with Christ. The idea is, is that if someone accuses you of being a Christ follower, you're not, as we, if we borrow the phrase from last week, we're not going to be ashamed of that. When Jesus says, you want to come after me, you have to deny protecting yourself and self-preservation. You're going to trust me with your life, and that means if you really trust me, you are not ashamed to identify completely and totally with who I am. Boy, when I was growing up, that was really tricky. I not only was an introvert, but I had a really broken self-image, and I worried about what everybody thought about me, except Jesus. I just kind of went, well, I'm glad you accept me, because I know I'm so messed up and not worth, worthy of friendships that I need someone to hang out the net to catch me when I fall. But, but the idea in this is that I was sometimes had a hard time going, yeah, I identify with Jesus. People would ask me things, and I could sort of feel my face going red because I wasn't sure how to stand up to him at college and at tech school. And and so we struggle with that sense of identifying with Christ. But Christ has taken us out of the domain of darkness and placed us under the umbrella of his protective love and care, and, and we are legally his. We belong to him when we trust him. And so that sense of identifying with Jesus is part of taking up our cross. That sounds really negative, but the positive things is that if we can ground our identity in Christ, we'll have tremendous freedom from the opinions of others about identifying with Christ. The second element here is the idea of surrender. Uh, The idea of cross is... uh, kind of a miserable symbol. I mean, I know a lot of you, especially ladies, will have little chains that have a little cross on it, and we think it's a nice reminder of what Jesus did. And that's fine, I don't wear a necklace with a chain on it. That's, you can do what you want. I'm not condemning that by any stretch. But wearing it around our neck is a lot different than how we live it out in real life. Uh, it may be a good reminder, but Jesus doesn't need to be a reminder in our life, he needs to be the consuming, defining element of life. And so as we think about this, this sense of surrender means that we're gonna turn the leadership of our life over to him. Denying self says I'm not gonna do self-directed life, taking up my cross means I'm going to fill my, the, that leadership role now, I'm gonna allow Jesus to do it, and that means we have to surrender to him. That means we have to, you might, some might say the word submit to him, but surrender is, is I'm going to trust what you say. So I've listed a number of things. I, if you want to understand that practically, that now what I believe about life and how I've lived my life, I'm going to set that aside and I'm going to accept what God says about life. So one of the things I had to grapple with growing up is they taught us like evolution, you know, growing up in school. 
And we kind of went, oh, that's cool. And then when I actually pl- we actually plugged into a Bible-believing church, they went, well, evolution doesn't make sense. God created it. And all of a sudden now I started, had to revise my entire belief system, as awkward as that was, as young as I was, to go, oh, wait a minute. This Bible tells me that God's responsible. It isn't an accident. So I had to, I had to change my beliefs. Now that's, for me, relatively easy as I think about it now. But God also wants you to change your values. And the, and the things that sometimes we value are not biblical, they're not what would honor Christ, and we have to allow the cross to separate it. We're not imprisoned to those anymore, and we need to set them aside in order to embrace the values that Christ said is true. And so the, this whole idea of being a great neighbor, you might say, well, Brad, that's just what the church is saying. Can you show me from scripture that we're supposed to love our neighbor? Oh, Oh, and you'll get people that'll go, well, I don't hate my neighbor, and kind of like you get into this like juvenile kind of 14-year-old thing, like just because you don't hate your neighbor doesn't mean you love them. Yeah, I don't hate them, that's because I never see them and I never talk to them, so I don't have any basis to hate them. And of course, that also proves that you're not loving them because love isn't the absence of conflict or animosity. Love is what Christ did. He emptied himself, came from heaven, and he sought us out. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. But often the biggest hindrance for us surrendering to Christ and following him that way is that our identity is still all got a lot of toxic stuff in it, and I'm more ashamed of who I am, and I struggle with who I am, much less following Jesus into the world to do care about others. I can't get this together yet. Which, if you want to know what that's about, we're going to talk about that next week. So we can <laughs> fix that next week if you want. So. But, but that becomes the process. We, we should be developing a new set of priorities in life. And it doesn't really matter whether I'm feeling it or not. It's like if God says this is a priority, like you need to spend time in my word, and you're going like, yeah, you know, I'm busy, I just don't feel it. Hopefully the Spirit of God says, well, I I get that, I know you're busy, but the world's not gonna fall apart if you spend time with me. You have a choice, he's not gonna make you do it. And I have to go, well, I'm not feeling it, but in this new world that I'm living in with Jesus, if he says it's important, I'm gonna choose by faith to do it even if I'm not feeling it, why? Well, I'd actually be a hypocrite if I didn't if I say I follow Jesus and I'm not concerned or value the things that he says I should value. And so there's a number of other things there. We try to operate by a new set of principles and behaviors and habits. That becomes the idea of the cross, is that God sets us free from the flesh and being dominated by it and having, in a sense, no choice. I'm just gonna work on the instincts of my flesh. Now I'm going to embrace what the Spirit of God puts on my heart And if you want to get that, you just read through Galatians and you you see the war that people go through between the flesh and the spirit and they battle against one another so that we don't always do the things that we know we should. But the freedom that the scriptures talk about if we live by the spirit of God is absolutely miraculous. And the frustration and the wearisome and the tediousness of giving into the flesh and allowing that to continue to shape our lives will suck the life the nephesh, the suck the life out of you because it will do nothing but create more toxicity and harm. And it'll rob you of your desire for living for Jesus as opposed to having this passion for him. 
So the first one is identity, the second one is surrender, the third one is humility. They may sound a lot the same, but the idea of humility is the disposition of valuing or assessing oneself appropriately. Now this is clearly tied to the idea of identity, but as you know, I've spent a lot of my life trying to learn how to embrace how God looks at me rather than keep believing the lies that I felt about myself. And even as recently as this last month, there's some things that I dealt with from my past, even in relationship to my mom, that I've, all of a sudden I've found a new freedom in terms of how I'm living because wouldn't, I would have never connected the two, but all of a sudden God's freed up my heart from certain things that used to irritate me. Doesn't mean I don't still get irritated, let me assure you, but there's, I, I, I'm moving further away from self-condemnation to seeing myself the way God does. And so this whole idea of humility is this how do I see myself and I've got to stop believing my own lies and what family and friends and the world says and I need to see myself standing before a throne of grace with a son who's given up his life for us and he says, if nothing else, he says, you know what? You are greatly loved because you're my child. I think one of the greatest pictures of this is Jesus' baptism. When Jesus was baptized, and it seems weird, but he was fully identifying with us, and it was interesting that he calls us when we trust in him to be baptized in his name. But when Jesus was baptized, there's this voice from heaven, and the Father makes this great pronouncement about Jesus. And he says, this is my beloved son in whom I take great delight. And that makes sense to us, because this is God and his son. But that was before Jesus did any ministry. It was before he set himself on mission, according to Matthew. He hadn't healed anybody as far as Matthew is concerned. He didn't do any miracles. He hadn't done any teaching. When he got back, this was kind of the inauguration into ministry. Now, usually we celebrate people after they've been successful. That's what we do at the end of their life, is when we have a funeral, we celebrate and say, man, this person did a great job. But the father does it with his own son before any of that happens. And what I say is, I think that's a brilliant picture of what happens to us when we surrender our life to Christ. In a sense, he makes the same kind of declaration. I think the New Testament is full of this. When you trusted Christ, and you became a child of God, and he welcomed you into the family, I think God sat back and he goes, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I take great delight and there's nothing in their future that's going to mess that up. Before you have a chance to exercise your gifts, get connected to a church, before you take communion, before you discover your spiritual gifts, before you serve in a program, before you mess up your first evangelism share time, you are still and always be the delight of the Father's heart. And so this idea of the cross means I have to lose my life, but if I lose my life, I will find my life because God will give it to me exactly the way he designed it. And it has nothing to do whether you screw it up or struggle with it or make the right decisions. He delights in who you are because you're his child. And so this symbol of the cross to me is this powerful reminder of all that God has done and continues to do And if we really understand that, we can walk humbly with him. That I know my value in Christ. 
I am dearly loved. Do I make mistakes? Yeah, I do, but that doesn't change his delight for me. He might discipline me so that I get back in fellowship with him, but the only reason he does that is because he delights in me, not because he thinks he made a mistake. Andrew Murray said this, humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and I am at peace as in the deep sea of calmness when all around me and above is trouble. See, if we really understand this sense of wanting to follow Jesus and denying self and taking up our cross, we have the possibility to step into this kind of life. That regardless of the chaos around us and the confusion and the conflict and the discrimination and everything else, that we can live amongst that but we live in the eye of his peace and his calmness because my value isn't depending on what other people say about me. My level of significance isn't whether I conquer the world or I'm always successful. Is that I learn to delight in him as much as he delights in me and no matter what we face in life, we can live in peace and harmony and fellowship and unity with our creator. And it's hard. Because half my week, we're stressing about whether we're raising our kids right. That I don't know whether I'm going to have a job at the end of the week. I'm trying to figure out my finances and I feel like I'm getting overwhelmed by it. And I'm at odds with my spouse because we had this fight the other day and I'm so annoyed at her that I'm not sure I want to talk to her. And we allow all this stuff to toxify our life and Jesus is saying, listen, I still delight in you regardless of this. Let me help you. And yet sometimes the reason we don't feel or sense or experience the help of our Savior is because we're not denying self. We still want to control the marbles. We still want to control the people around us. We still want to control the outcomes. We're not denying self on a daily basis. We haven't really surrendered our life to Christ, so we don't trust him that the fingerprints on on our life where he leads and guides us is... We don't like it, so I'm going to take over and I want to control this because I don't like where you're leading me. And we lose a sense of humility because we've been taught that if God is in our life, he will make all the bad stuff go away and he'll protect me from that. And so I'm losing confidence in that you know what you're doing, so I need to take back control and figure this out for myself. Because the fourth thing here is to simply faithfully follow Jesus. And to me, this is where God's love really compels us to love. If I want to follow Jesus, but I'm not willing to deny self, and I haven't taken up my cross, then it's really hard for the love of Christ to compel me, because there's stuff that's in the way of that. I might say I love my neighbor, but I never take the initiative to step there because I'm still struggling with my identity and what they might think because I'm sticking my nose in their business. 
I don't know how to do it because I fear the opinion of people more than Jesus. But it's being motivated not by a creedal list of legalistic rules and regulations. It's a motivation by the love of Christ and a desire to honor him. And I want you to notice that this is not the idea of saying, okay, now that I'm a Christian, in order to prove that God's investment in saving me was worth it, I've got to do great things for God. I've got to do something that's going to change a bunch of people's lives. That I need to know my spiritual gifts and I've got to use them. It's not what you can do for Jesus. It's not what you could build for his kingdom. It's not about your dreams and ambitions, talents, or your resume. This is simply a process of saying, Jesus, you lead, I'll follow. It's not about imposing our agenda on Jesus about what I want to do for him. It's about following Jesus and saying, I'm willing to do whatever you call me to. Because I'm convinced sometimes we want to tell Jesus what we want to do because we're terrified of what he will have us do. I can control this because it fits my gifts and abilities and talents. But if you lead me to walk across the street and talk to my neighbor, that terrifies the skin off me. I'd rather serve in a program. What is at stake is our soul. See, all that these statements are saying is this isn't how to be a better Christian per se. You'll notice he doesn't say, you know, if you don't do all this, then your ministry's gonna be ineffective. He's not saying this, that if you don't do all these things, then you're never gonna lead someone to Jesus. He says the issue is way more of self-interest, and it's not being selfish. What's at stake is your soul. If you, if you and I and people in our families and our neighbors and our workplace aren't properly related to God through Jesus Christ, their soul's in jeopardy. And the challenge for us is that anybody can walk around and claim to be a follower of Jesus, but there's way too many people in our world skipping deny self, take up your cross. I want to follow Jesus and I want to follow some of his teachings. Or I want to follow, he's inspiring to me, so I'll follow some of his ideas. Or when I have time, I'll do, and as I've told you before, Jesus doesn't want volunteers. He wants individuals who fully surrender their life and take up their cross and follow him on a daily basis. Let me... uh, finish, I'm sure most of you have heard of an individual called Lindsay Heyman. He's a British gentleman who back, was it 1987, decided that because of his faith in Jesus, he wanted to communicate that to a lost world. And so he made a 55 pound cross, attached a wheel to the back of it, and he put it on his shoulder and started walking around all over the states. And this is a picture here of when he first started, way back in 1987. He has, at this point, traveled over 6,000 miles on countries all over the world. He's been to Berlin, he's been to Moscow. He uh, just basically walks through the city, 
doesn't intrude when people stop and ask him. He tries to figure out a way to communicate with them. And everything I read about what he says is dead on. Like, he's doing this because of literally the parallel passage in Luke where he says, Jesus told us to take up our cross and follow him. And I want people to know that Jesus is the one who can save you from your sins. And so this is his whole life. And most of her are going, well, don't you think there's a better way to do it than that? Well, let me ask you this. How's your way working? See, the next picture shows how old he is now. He's still hauling a cross around, trying to represent Jesus to whoever will talk to him. And you know, I remember when he first started doing this, the comments from a lot of Christians is, this is really a silly way to spend your life. Yep. From a human perspective, it's a totally silly way to spend your life. What's more tragic is people who claim to know Jesus and they spend their whole life carrying around possessions and money and ambitions and success and power and reputation. Because we put those on our backpack and we carry them around all day long trying to build our own little kingdoms. And there isn't anybody in the world that we know that we're a cross-bearer for for Jesus. Because we're too distracted with our stuff. I don't know where you're at this morning. Jesus has the right to demand everything for us because not only did he create us, but he saved us. But I want you to remember, no matter if you're sitting there going like, well, I haven't done as good a job of this as I should. I want you to remember that no matter whether you think you've done this well or terrible, because God has reconciled you to himself, he will always delight and take pleasure in who you are because you're his child. Your failure at success at this, to some degree, doesn't change the reality of his delight and his pleasure that you are greatly loved and he delights in you. Now I know it's hard for us to separate, but it's the reason he delights for us that he'll, his spirit may come to your heart this morning and say, hey listen, and I'll put it in my lingo, not his. Would it be okay if we kind of get realigned so that when you wake up in the mornings that you're willing to deny self, take up your cross and represent Jesus wherever you go today? That you're willing to carry the cross and the presence of Jesus so that when the the love of Christ compels you to go sit by a workmate who's alone and you want to have a conversation with them so that you might someday get the chance to share Jesus, that you'll take that one small step and go have lunch. Or you rock across to the neighbor and help them shovel snow in the winter. That you might invite someone to an activity that might be a bonfire. See, the issue isn't what do we do for Jesus, it's what is it Jesus calling us to do? Because he delights in you, that's not gonna change. We can take the greatest risks in the world because we know he's never gonna stop delighting in us. But it's not about what we do for him. 
What he's gonna say is, if you wanna follow me, deny self, take up your cross, and all I want you to do is follow me. That's all you have to worry about is following me. You willing to do that this morning? You know, there, some of you, it might be an issue that maybe you realize you've never trusted Christ. And it begins with believing in who God is and surrendering to him through faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins so that his greatest delight is that you've come home to be a child of God and to know that his greatest delight is that relationship. And today becomes the first day of the rest of your life to follow Jesus. Father, we ask that you will continue to help us understand that as harsh as the demands that Jesus makes and what it means to follow him is built on the gospel of Jesus Christ, of who he is and his death and resurrection. And he's not just trying to use us so that we'll be a better Christian or that we'll stop making mistakes. He's trying to save our soul. And Father, when we leave here today, I pray that, in a sense, quite literally and metaphorically, that we're gonna take up our cross and we're going to follow Jesus. We're gonna give him our full attention in how he wants us to set our values and priorities and we may have to sit down and have a discussion with you. Because there's some things in our life that are kind of like, yeah, those just aren't negotiable. There's insecurities in our heart that we're just saying, I'm just not doing that. And it becomes a message to ourselves that we need you to continue to do a work in us so that we understand how much you delight in us and set us free to delight in you. And Father, we plead that you will do this in our hearts. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.